Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Whoa, that was a close encounter. A close encounter of the glass kind. Oh, boy. Off to a good start. That's the movie we watch, guys. Close Encounter of the Third Kind, not the Glass Kind. Not the Glass Kind, (laughs) to be clear. So before we started, we wanted to implore you guys to continue to rate and review the show. Yeah, I always ask this at the end of the episode, but if you guys are out there listening and you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes like a huge difference for other people to find the show. Absolutely. And it gives us a little sense of like what you guys are really thinking. Totally. Like, give us an honest review. Are a lot we? of shows, they're going to ask you, hey, come give us five stars. Yeah. We say... <laughs> rate us whatever the fuck you feel <laughs> that's what we say from time to time yeah we just want to know how you're engaging if you are at all so anyway that's yeah that. uh, review. on to the close encounters <laughs> yeah 1977 1977 yeah so spielberg had made jaws and then was allowed to make any movie that he wanted mm-hmm. and i guess as a teenager he had made it a full-length science fiction film called firelight and oh. many scenes from firelight were incorporated in close encounters for a shot for shot basis what, and Firelight was about the same. I don't think. I think it was like related. It was a sci-fi movie of his early days. Like he had always been wanting to do an alien movie, and oh. like he had actually originally this was called Watch the Skies, and it included flying saucers landing in West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And then he was told by a friend of his, like Steve, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And it eventually evolved into New Mexico or where? Where was it? Yeah, no, no, it was in Wyoming. Wyoming, yeah. Yeah. Devil's Tower, Wyoming. Before we get way too far ahead of ourselves, let's listen to the trailer, shall we? Oh, my God. Have you recently had a close encounter? A close encounter with something very unusual. Who are you, people? So Ray Bradbury declared this one of the best, or in fact, the best, the greatest science fiction film ever made. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't know that this other guy, Paul Schrader, apparently wrote the original script, but that Spielberg changed a bunch of it, and so fucking Schrader backed out. And since you can't, like, release a movie with no writing credit, he was like, I'll step in I'll take the credit, please. Well, yeah, Paul Schrader, he wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and, like, a bunch of other incredible movies. So he's a really great writer. Right. But but so much of the movie is based on, like, Steven Spielberg's personal experiences. Like, Mm -hmm. apparently the film was partly inspired by an experience he had as a kid when, like, his parents just rushed the kids into the car one night and drove to an area where a bunch of other people were gathered and watched this crazy meteor shower. Oh, right? that is, it totally has that feeling. That kind of awe, but like bringing the community together in a mm-hmm. kind of way. Also, in a Rolling Stone magazine interview at the time, Spielberg said he drew inspiration from the song When You Wish Upon a Star. Mm. I don't recall when we were watching it, but I guess at some point Roy, Richard Dreyfuss' character, talks to his family about wanting to see Pinocchio. And mm. in fact, I don't know how the fuck we didn't notice that when we were watching it, it during the closing scenes, the score has a movement from the song oh. that I'm going to play for you. 
Right now. Ooh. <laughs> wow. How did we not notice that? I don't I mean, know. It I mean, slow down, obviously, and you're not thinking like clearly when you wish upon a star, but it's so distinct when you take yeah, it. Yeah, maybe I was just like so in the moment that I didn't like recognizable piece Wait of music. A second. Is that Pinocchio? Although, right. but in retrospect, like that's one of the most recognizable movements. It really I've ever is. Heard in my life. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Well, it's funny, just talking about the score, I was thinking about it like John Williams did the score for this and Star Wars in the same year. Like, oh my God. Like what a, what an incredible piece of work. Well, and he also did the score before the film was edited. Close that, Encounters oh. was edited. So then Spielberg like edited the film to match the music, which oh. is kind of why it's so lyrical. They really liked how it ended up. Like it sounded, even just that trailer sounded like fucking Fantasia, didn't it? Right. It was like, <laughs> Just telling stories. It's he's got to be looked on eventually as like the Mozart of our day, the Beethoven, like the prolific nature of his yeah. work. Because then we're doing Jurassic Park next week, and he did that. That's twenty oh, years yeah. later, oh and like God. I mean, the level of iconic work that he's capable of putting so out iconic. is like insane to me. Well, and then along the same lines in terms of the instruments telling a story and whatnot, apparently they chose the tuba as the voice of the mothership because the difficulty of playing the instrument added a human characteristic to the aliens. That's an interesting, that interesting? thought process. I yeah. agree with them. Right? Another abandoned idea was to have the UFOs resemble things from Earth, you know, seemingly so that the aliens could seem less threatening. So they weren't going to use shit like the McDonald's and Chevron logos. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, you mean America. <laughs> I'm just being like... Right. It's like, <laughs> but the premise is that the aliens are using these to make yeah. us feel more comfortable totally. because it's like what we've put up all right. over the place. Well, because to them, they're like, oh, well, this is all over the place. This is this must be an important symbol in the right. human world, and uh, as opposed to me. us, like. <laughs> consumerist capitalist culture that's just destroying the world it just reminds me of i remember when i was in eighth grade i had this like very eccentric science teacher and i remember him doing this whole thing about like if aliens came down and looked at us like what would they think we worshipped right. and his answer was cars I guess, and it was like this yeah. whole thing about like we're, they get in them every day they go they use them to get around it's like they got to be worshiping these things it's like the most important thing that to them that is true but i feel like there's so many of those types of things you're right. like what are these fucks lining up for a new phone yeah that was Starbucks? that was before the iphone he right. said that <laughs> <That's> <laughs> i'm sure today he would have chosen the phone the mothership's dome was supposed to resemble a breast oh, the, ha really? the hatch i guess i didn't notice this because my mind's not in the gutter 24 7 <laughs> but apparently the hatch lowers from the nipple it's supposed to be a very literal representation of a mother ship oh well <sighs> wait because mother's nipples open no, because mothers have nipples, Jeff. Yeah, but so do so do I. Yeah, but you don't give life from your teat. <laughs> exactly. You don't feed babies. All right, it's the, yeah, okay. <laughs> you don't have giant bulbous. Well, the doors didn't open like double doors, if you know what I'm saying. I can't. You're gonna have to exit. <laughs> yeah, all right, oh, I'll leave. God. For the small aliens, they ended up using these like little girls between the ages of eight and twelve. Apparently, Spielberg wanted to use little girls instead of little boys because he said they moved more gracefully. Oh. 
Well, I'm like, that's one of those like weird. You're like, is it like good sexist? Like, <laughs> we're all graceful, just these light little girls. I wasn't particularly graceful. I was fucking stumbling. I I was definitely not graceful. <laughs> right. I get why he didn't use the voice. <laughs> Final fun tidbit: the movie takes place in Devil's Tower, Wyoming, and the flight crew that shows up at the end, this flight 19 that was you know found in the middle of the fucking desert. In real life, famously, quote-unquote, went missing in the Bermuda Triangle. And Bermuda Triangle is also known as the Devil's Triangle. Oh. Clever. Oh, I didn't know that that was another name for Mm -hmm. it. And the Devil's Peak. That's right. And to this day, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is shown every night at Devil's Tower KOA Campground, which means it is one of the most screened movies of all time. I would love to go right? a- to the actual site Every and watch it. Night. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that's like <laughs> Disney World has a, a New Year's Eve fireworks display every single night, and it's like, man, oh, it must get tiring. Right. Yeah. must get real tiring for the people who are there every day. Yeah, I was gonna be like, the projectionist must be, and then I was like, they don't have projectionists anymore, do they? <laughs> that's like if something goes wrong with the. I don't school. know. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I don't like know 16-year-old kid just like sitting with his feet up reading a comic book. Yeah. You know. But then you can go climb the Devil's Peak and be like, come down here, aliens. So as we all know, UFOs are unidentified flying objects, mm-hmm. which is to say they are not aliens. We just don't know what they are yet. Correct. In the movie, they specifically say that Americans have taken 7 billion photographs over the previous year, mm-hmm. and none of them have caught an alien on them, okay? So, uh, you know. Well, in 2017, it's estimated that worldwide 1.2 trillion photos will be taken. From 7 billion to 1.2 yeah. trillion? Not surprising at all, right? And it's going up by like 100 billion every year, <laughs> the amount of photos we take. And still, no evidence. Right, right. So therefore, <laughs> therefore, I'm sorry, I'm stuck on that note because I just even think about how much my life changed from the time that I had, you know, I would get like the disposable camera mm-hmm. as you go through the whole process of like making sure a picture actually, you know, there's Right, this, you the only tablet. got 26 of yeah. them or whatever. You have to take the time to go get it developed as opposed to now where you're just taking pictures nonstop. Right, and we still haven't gotten them. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, ah. uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much stock to put in that or, or, or not, but... There were a bunch of government projects in the 50s and 60s like Project Blue Book and some others that were meant to gather as much information on UFOs as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in case aliens come down, but more because like what if the Russians are doing something around here? Sure, that's yeah. topical. <laughs> oh, oh shit. There's a bunch of things that happened in Project Blue Book that would make a conspiracy theorist's day though. Because like at one point a new general came in and he changed all of the project identifications from like Every, anything that was classified as possible that we know what it is mm-hmm. was upgraded to probable that we know what it is. And okay. anything that was probable was upgraded to definitely a weather balloon. Right. So there's like times where this happened and people are like, well, what, what are they really trying to do here? You know, like even with my I'm going to be talking about the Bermuda Triangle later. And you just like people that report these findings versus mm-hmm. what is later uncovered. You just realize you're like, I don't I mean, there's the truth is somewhere in between all of that. Right. Right. Well, I think that, like, Blue Book was kind of intended to debunk UFO things, but it's also, like, maybe that is the right attitude of, like, coming at it and 
Like being like coming at it with skepticism. Right. Yeah. And even with an attempt to debunk, like not to completely discard all information. Right. Because I think that more than 90% of all of the reports of UFOs that they gathered were actually, they, it was this, or it was that, that they we were, were testing explained. a weather balloon. Right. But there's still like 700 where it's like, we just don't have enough information to mm -hmm. explain what happened here. And I found a couple of those examples where it's like totally weird and unexplained and like i'm not saying it's aliens but it, it's aliens right <laughs> okay <laughs> so in 1952 over a couple of weeks there were a bunch of ufo sightings in washington dc and two different air traffic control towers picked up the same signal and were both tracking an object that was hovering over a radio beacon before it disappeared from both radars at the exact same time uh -huh. And then a week later, the exact same thing happened again. Like, same towers, same radar readings, different operators. Mm -hmm. And so... So, yeah, it wasn't one crazy guy that's like, I swear, I saw it again. Exactly. Like, so, they, this time, they dispatched two fighter jets. And one of the fighter jets' pilots saw nothing. The other one reported seeing four orbs of light zipping around. Mm -hmm. And he a actually radioed in and asked if he should shoot it down. Oh, sure. <laughs> but before he got an answer, it, like, zipped off. And the official explanation is that the false radar readings were because of a temperature inversion, mm -hmm. where like a pocket of warm, moist air covers a layer of cool, dry air, mm -hmm. something, and it makes some weird thing happen. Right. But even the head of Project Blue Book at the time didn't take that story as like being true right. because it completely discounted all of the actual like eyewitness reports. Right. And the fact that, like, the radar did pick it up and stuff. Even if it's, like, a weird cloud cover that moves in. Like, right. I totally get the idea of energy or heat, you know, making whatever your readings mm -hmm. are, like, fucked up. But, yeah, to just discredit these people that are like, no, I straight up saw these orbs of light that didn't just, like, float off. They, like, zipped Zip away. Yeah, they seemed like yeah, there was some yeah. kind of direction there. Yeah. It, who knows what it really was. Oh, man. <laughs> Sometimes the explanation will be, yeah, there was a weird radar thing, and also there was a meteor shower coincidentally exactly, at the same right. time. And, you know. Totally. Wow, there's a lot of overlap with some of this Bermuda Triangle shit. I bet. Dude, <laughs> I bet. Because, yeah, this next one is another plane disappearance. This is called the Valentich disappearance. This Australian dude, Frederick Valentich, mm -hmm. his final radio transmissions are really weird because he's asking air traffic control if there are any like experimental craft in the area below 5,000 feet. And they're like, no, what are you seeing? And he's like, I don't know what it is. It looks like landing lights. I like it's all shiny on the outside. It's metallic. It just vanished. And wow. And then... They're like a little while later, he comes back on. And he's like, Melbourne, because he was in Australia. Right. That strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. And then there's two seconds of silence. And he says, it's hovering and it's not an aircraft. And there was then 17 seconds of a metallic scraping sound. And then oh. that was the last anybody heard from him at all. Oh. No one knows what that was. And he disappeared. And he disappeared into oblivion? Completely disappeared. They couldn't find his plane. Now, he was, like, close enough to oceans that he may have crashed into the ocean. Right. But, like, nobody what? ever found it. Remind me what year it was? This was in 1978. Okay. God. And, and since yeah. then, there haven't really been any explanations? Not for this. I mean, Fuck. one of the theories is that what it really was was that he became super disoriented right. and didn't realize that he was actually flying upside down and <gasps> that the lights he was seeing was his own plane reflected off of the ocean. Oh, my. I know. I feel like 
the human error here. Like the human <laughs> right, factor right. comes into play so much. Well, it's especially easy when the guy is dead to blame it on the pilot error because right. he doesn't. He's not there to speak for himself. But and it's also, or to be like it was the origins unknown. Right. The guy's dead. He can't be like no 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 straight up like my wheel. What I was about to say was it's hovering and it's not an aircraft. It's actually me. Yeah. I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm fucked up. I shouldn't have you know <laughs> taken that LSD before hopping on. Yeah. Ay ay ay. But like kind of related to this was I was looking into something called pareidolia, mm-hmm. which is or pareidolia. Who knows? It's a scientific name for why we always see familiar patterns and things like faces everywhere. And it's it's like whether you see your Jesus on your toast mm-hmm. or a human face in an image on Mars, it's like we have this we're in the, us to be. We're the pattern finders. We're the pattern this, finders. I think that's gonna be our like through line for every one of these fucking episodes. <laughs> be like we just try to find patterns. Here we are. It's like the reason why we explain these things away. We're right. Like, oh, it was the Bermuda Triangle because yeah. we know that that's the thing that <laughs> makes people disappear. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I just keep going back to like we live in an atmosphere that's constantly bending light in ways that. Yeah we don't understand and also like when you're up in the sky we're used to how it looks from the ground but we're not used to how things look from the air and there's possibilities of like weather balloons that like they think are flying around really fast but it's actually their own aircraft's movement and it's like zipping by the windshield and it's like you're disoriented up there everything looks the same totally it's crazy you don't have like a second witness there it's just him floating about right but it's the times where there's a second witness, of which there are a bunch of examples <laughs> yeah, you're where like, you're like, wait what's a minute, what <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> so as we said earlier, the movie famously depicts Flight 19, which was this, this crew of Navy men, as having been like snatched away by flying saucers and later ditched in the deserts of Mexico. That's they show up at the end. They like inexplicably haven't aged, I guess, in right. that time. It's a very Twilight <laughs> very Zone 40s. Yeah, it was so concept. Cool. But I didn't realize that Flight 19 is an actual crew that was said to have disappeared into the Bermuda Triangle in 1945. Now, just to do a little quick reminder of what the Bermuda Triangle is, it's an area that covers about 500,000 square miles of ocean off the southeastern tip of Florida now. So it forms this triangle between Miami, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. So it's been blamed for a bunch of quote-unquote unexplained disappearances of airplanes and ships and stuff. And I didn't realize its origins go back as far as even like when Christopher Columbus was sailing through the area on his first voyage Mm. to the New World. He reported that one night a great flame of fire crashed into the sea and that a strange light appeared in the distance a few weeks later. It was probably a meteor right but you know the light appeared a few weeks later yeah i'm not quite sure about that i mean this is again one of those things it's like christopher columbus like writing in his fucking diaries and and now i'm gonna go off and kill some people yeah because at the time they didn't really know oh meteor shower that's a thing that happened so he's just seeing that but he had also he wrote about erratic compass readings Now, this has been speculated that it's perhaps because at that time, a sliver of the Bermuda Triangle was one of the few places on Earth where true north and magnetic north lined up. Oh. A couple of things here. I didn't know what true north and magnetic north, like what the differences were. So Mm -hmm. quickly, magnetic north is the direction the north end of a compass needle points. So this corresponds to the direction of the Earth's magnetic field lines. Right. True north is the direction along a meridian towards the North Pole. So I guess they are slightly different, but for whatever reason, yeah. Really what it is is that the magnetic pole is not directly on top of the North Pole. It's like a little off its axis. So yeah, what your compass is picking up is the off-center thing. Mm -hmm. But for our maps, that would be true north. 
Earth. Right. Some scholars claim that William Shakespeare's The Tempest was based on a real-life Bermuda shipwreck, which may have, you know, enhanced the mystery of it all. But the legend didn't really capture the public's attention until the 20th century. So the first big one was the disappearance of the USS Cyclops in 1918. Mm. This was like a huge, long Navy cargo ship that had over 300 men and 10,000 tons of manganese ore on it. And it was on its way from Salvador to Baltimore, but never arrived. Hmm. It apparently made an unscheduled stop to get more supplies in Barbados on March 3rd and 4th, but then disappeared somewhere between there and the Chesapeake Bay. So all 306 crew and passengers died. No wreckage was ever found. And to this day, it remains the single largest loss of life in United States naval history, not directly involving combat. Whoa. Yeah. Like later, even Woodrow Wilson, the president at the time, said, only God and the sea know what happened to the great ship. Oh, God. One thing to note, though, is that this could have happened anywhere between Barbados and Baltimore. It wasn't necessarily like in the in triangle, the triangle. Right. but proponents of the Bermuda Triangle theory point to this lack of a distress call as evidence of something paranormal. But I mean, 1918, we're talking about wireless communications at that time. It's right. not crazy to think that a rapidly sinking ship wouldn't have time to be like, well, something's going on. Especially if like, let's say they hit an iceberg. I, it sounds like there weren't icebergs where right. they were, but let, let's say right. they hit something, Anything, a rock. Right. That could knock out the communications mm -hmm. equipment at first. If you're talking about heavy winds and like cloud cover and all the reasons it why it knocks you're over just, the yeah. fucking guy's cup of coffee yeah. and it lands right on the electronics. Everything's explodes. on the fritz. You get and then you get the gremlins coming in there, just fucking. Uh, you the know, the gremlins come in and you're, you're fucked. Fucking with your flaps. What was it? <laughs> They'll flutter your flaps. They'll muddle your maps and muddle your maps. Your flaps. <laughs> so sexual. Um, <laughs> I'll flutter your flaps. Okay, so this is the big one, and this is like what Close Encounters surrounds around, right? Mm. It's the mysterious disappearance of Flight 19. So let's fly back all the way to this. <laughs> oh, yikes, too soon. Let's go all the way back to December 5th, 1945. Five U.S. Navy Avenger torpedo bombers take off from a naval air base in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. There's five planes, 14 dudes. The planes were scheduled to do a three-hour exercise known as Navigation Problem Number One. <laughs> <laughs> They had this triangular flight plan where they're supposed to start out heading east 56 miles from the Florida coast to conduct practice bombing runs at a place called Hens and Chicken Shoals. And then... <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so, I know. I was like, there's so much going on. So they're just flying the triangle? Yeah, just flying the triangle. Bermuda Triangle is 500,000 square miles, so they were just doing like a little mini triangle, 120 miles okay. worth. So the flight was being led by 27-year-old Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor. This fucking guy. He was an experienced pilot and veteran of several combat missions in World War II's Pacific Theater, which, did you know that that's what they called it? Yeah. The Pacific Theater? Yeah, the like, theater of war. The theater of war. Mm -hmm. So this is basically like Japan's shit in, right. you know, in East Asia, yeah. the Pacific and stuff. I was like... They were, there was the European... I don't know if they called it the theater, but... Yeah. Like, Whoa. But it reminded gross. me... Gross. <laughs> I like to perform and make people smile and laugh when I do theater. Yeah, there's not happiness on my theaters. <laughs> So apparently everything at first went according to plan, but shortly after they turned north for the second leg of the journey, this Captain Taylor starts becoming convinced that his compass was malfunctioning and that his planes had been flying in the wrong direction. Hmm. So whereas planes today have GPS, it's like really hard to get lost unless you're just a dum-dum. Right. You know, back then, in 1945, you had to know your starting point, how long and fast you'd been flying, in what direction. There's no landmarks. You just have to fucking know where you're going. Mm -hmm. So even though they'd done the thing at Hens and Chicken Shoals in the Bahamas less than <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hey, oh, and chicken shows. So they did that like an hour before. Taylor was thinking, ah, we're 
off course. We're in the Florida Keys. Uh-huh. Now, one thing later that was brought to light is that Taylor had recently been transferred to Fort Lauderdale from Miami, and a lot of people have speculated that he may have confused some of the islands off the Bahamas for the fucking Florida Keys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, I, I'm used to this part of Florida. Yeah. That must be like, what nah, I know. This is it. So he starts bugging out, doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Meanwhile, a giant storm comes in, like a huge front, crazy wind, rain, clouds, all the whole nine. So under normal circumstances, a pilot that's lost in the Atlantic is supposed to at least just point their planes toward the setting sun and then just fly west towards the mainland. But Taylor makes the decision to go northeast, which only takes them farther out to sea. Mm. So even if some of his pilots are overheard, you know, over the radio frequency saying that he's being a dingus and being like, damn it, if we just fly west, we'd get home, you know? So, like, people knew. And apparently maybe, like, some investigators said that one plane maybe broke off and flew in a different direction, but most people were following Taylor's instruction. And, like, you could hear him telling his peeps to start bracing for impact if, you know, because fuel's running low. It's like, how scary, right? This fucking madman that's being like, no, and everybody knowing that he's being an idiot. He's taking us out into the sea. Yeah. Oh my God. So then radio transmissions become increasingly faint, and the last one was heard by 7.04 p.m. <sighs> Navy, oh, my God. I mean, that's so scary. It's so scary. But then, okay, so they, they mysteriously disappear. The Navy starts scrambling to, you know, send search planes to look out for them. I got to say, really quick, yeah, it doesn't please. sound mysterious at all. Not at all, right? <laughs> they don't mysteriously disappear no. at all. When you, but then you hear how just, like, in how certain... We'll get to it. It's yeah. fucking nuts because okay. I was I had no idea. I thought this was just a continued to be unexplained. It's like, no, people covered this shit up or they like changed the narrative of it. Uh. So the Navy immediately starts scrambling for search planes to hunt for these peeps. And so this pair of PBM Mariner flying boats, they take off from a station north of Fort Lauderdale. But then 20 minutes later, one of them suddenly vanishes off radar. No wreckage is ever found. And of course, the weather at the time was super shitty. Basically, they went off of the suspicions of a passing merchant ship that had seen a fireball, an oil slick, and airplane debris floating on the surface. <laughs> okay. So they're like, we're assuming that's the Mariner flying boat. These right. boats, These boats were like notoriously, they were known for catching fire quickly. They were actually nicknamed flying gas tanks for, for their propensity to Even catch. the planes, not boats, right? They were, they were flying boats. Yeah. Like they were, they're Mariner flying. Yeah. Oh. Fuck. You know what I'm, I, what I'm assuming is the ones that like they land and can float. Oh, they like have the like planes with the skis. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm assuming. Okay. But I guess they were, you know, they were nicknamed flying gas tanks because there'd be like a tiny spark and they'd just go flying. Oh, so they're s- speculating that one of the men on board didn't realize that like the unpressurized cabin contained gas fumes, lit a cigarette and probably just exploded. It. Oh man. <laughs> that's <laughs> terrible. So then the Navy But this said, is like the recon <laughs> This is like the recon team, right? Exactly. But because it was so quote unquote mysterious, it just added to the thing like not only flight 19 but also one of the rescue ships. So then the Navy sends a bunch of like 300 boats the next day. They they comb the area for like 5 days and they can't find fucking anything. And even as one of Taylor's colleagues noted, they didn't call those planes Ironbirds for nothing. They weighed 14,000 pounds empty, so when they ditched, they went down pretty fast. <laughs> I believe it. She's made of iron, sir. I assure you, she can sink. Right. So then the Navy starts going into this investigation about it. They're like, well, it sounds like Taylor fucked this up big time. Like he confused the keys for the, for the, yeah. you know, these other islands and whatnot. He'd been known as 
oh man, this is a little bit on the nose, but flying by the seat of his pants and getting <laughs> yeah, lost in the past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Witnesses later claimed that he arrived to Flight 19's pre-exercise briefing several minutes late and requested to be excused from leading the mission. He said, quote, I just don't want to take this one out, but nobody knew why. But Taylor's mother didn't like that narrative, so she got the Navy to fucking change the report to read that the disaster was caused for causes or reasons unknown. So the causes and reasons are known. But mommy but didn't like it. the cover-up made people more conspiracy theory yeah. about it. Yeah. Wow. So, so there's nothing mysterious about this at all. This Not is a very all. explained Bermuda Triangle 100%. thing. 100%. Wow. But then what's crazy is then, so after all of that, like, because the Navy changed the report, then Flight 19 becomes, you know, the Lost Squadron. And then later, like this author, Vincent Gaddis, or Gaddis, I don't know, he coined the phrase Bermuda Triangle in a pulp magazine in 1964. And then for like from there, then authors, there's another book called The Bermuda Triangle that came out. And so, you know, you'd have all these paranormal writers that came come mm. out of the woodwork saying that, the, you know, the deadliness of the area is because of sea monsters or aliens mm -hmm. like we see in Close Encounters. And then, like, more scientifically-minded people say that it might be because of magnetic anomalies, time mm. warps, reverse gravity fields. And time like, warps. Time, you know, <laughs> yeah. the things that happen. The, and then the like, more scientific-minded. <laughs> time warp. Let's do the time warp again, you guys. And then the, like, methane eruptions and that kind of thing. Mm. And then there was this guy, Larry Cush, who wrote a book in 1975 called The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved. And it's more along the lines of what you and I are saying, which right. is, like, actually, if you look into the records, <laughs> everything explained. is explained. Yeah. People say that this happened during, quote-unquote, calm seas, but really it was during a raging storm. I mean, right. imagine where this is. Close to Puerto it, Rico, Bermuda, like I was the gonna summer say, time is Hurricane City. If there's one thing that we've learned this year, it's mm -hmm. that that area is filled with crazy weather. Yeah. And it's funny how like they also mention sometimes, you know, just watching the coverage of the hurricanes in that area, how like the hurricane will come in, skirt and edge, and then like turn way out to sea. And mm -hmm. I'm just thinking like at the time, the 1800s especially, mm -hmm. like I, I could imagine that a storm came through wrecked a ship and like no one on land ever knew that it really came totally and it was like a big hurricane right absolutely because if you're not directly there you, you're not you don't <laughs> right. have the internet to just be like guys we're we didn't have any picture. satellites up looking right. at all the weather patterns and shit now as much as i love debunking all of that then oh just to throw one last little wrench before we while we round <laughs> this little bad boy out Meteorologists speaking to the Science Channel's What on Earth revealed a new theory and findings, mm. which kind of meets somewhere into that truth place. The place of truth <laughs> that I just made up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was saying before, I was like, the truth remains somewhere in the middle of all right. of this speculation. So, so we're landing somewhere in the middle. That's right. We're somewhere in the middle. So using radar satellite imagery, they discovered these bizarre hexagonal shaped clouds between 20 and 50 miles wide forming over the area of the Bermuda Triangle. Mm. They're formed they by weren't what? triangle shaped clouds. They were hexagonal. hexagonal. <laughs> That's right. They've been all <laughs> wrong all along. That's it's, the been only... a, it's been a hexagon the whole time. <laughs> the Bermuda Hexagon. <laughs> So they're formed by what is called microbursts, which are basically just blasts of air. They're essentially fucking air bombs. So mm. these blasts of air are so powerful that they can reach 170 miles per hour, which is like a hurricane-like wind oh. force that is capable of sinking ships and aircraft that are passing by. So these are like sudden, like, yeah. like wind fucking guns? air bombs. Like you're just like, well, I'm flying here. And then, Whoa. So you're basically knocked out of the sky by, I guess, Mother Earth just... Blasting you out. So like I'm saying, it's not that they mysteriously disappeared, right. but it's also not always that, you know, the 
person was a complete fuckface. There might be these little like air bombs that right. throw people out in this area. Well, that's the thing about the triangle is like, yeah, it it's clearly a place of a lot of weird shit mm-hmm. weather wise. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a lot of crazy microclimates in a reasonably small area. But it's such a romantic idea. That it's like this, like, there's a spot on Earth, and if you go there, you don't know. Will right. you make it out? People have disappeared. <laughs> have they gone through the Stargate? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a lot better than being like, Captain Taylor's a total fuckface. Yeah. It's like, it's a lot better than like, that area is kind of dangerous. You might die. With all of the questions about like communicating with extraterrestrial intelligence, there's a lot of questions that surround communicating with dolphins as a route to being able to communicate with aliens. And right now we know that dolphins have a complicated language among themselves. We just don't know what they're saying yet. Sure. And they have these like signature whistles that they use to identify each other. Like when a group of dolphins meet each other in a group, they'll use specific whistles to address each other the same way that humans use names. So it's like on that level. Dolphins do seem to understand us to a certain degree. They'll like take commands and understand both the meaning and the order of words. And they'll do stuff like put an item on the right side of their tank and do a bucket on the left. And right, like right. They'll take commands and understand them. But right now, we're not just trying to get them to understand us. We're trying to understand them. And this year, a group of scientists are starting a four-year dolphin language project, which is using AI software that was originally developed to understand more than 40 human languages. Oh, my God, yes. And they're going to use it to study captive bottlenose dolphins at a wildlife park in Sweden. And it has two main purposes. Like, one is to improve the language learning AI software. But the other is that they think that we may actually be able to literally translate dolphin language by 2021. Oh, my God. I love it. As you were talking, I was just like, "Mm, can they maybe dub over Flipper? (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) I just hope that they we when we talk to them, they're thanking us for all the fish. Yeah. You know that all the fish that we're giving them. That's from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is that it turns out that all the dolphins say so long and thanks for all the fish. Okay. Okay. It's just you a just reference. ripped that out. <laughs> You're just, like, everybody knows. Everybody knows that they, they're thanking us for all the fish. But in learning about these studies, mm-hmm. I learned about a really crazy study involving dolphin communication from 1965. So a research institute run by Dr. John C. Lilly, who is known as the wackiest and most polarizing figure in marine science history. Love it. I want to see this guy. He held an experiment for 10 weeks where his assistant, Margaret Howe, volunteered to live in confinement with Peter, a bottlenose dolphin. Oh. They rebuilt this house and allowed Margaret, who was 23 years old, to, sl- to live, sleep, eat, wash, and play intimately with the dolphin. Allowed or like... <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just so Allowed. Let me get into it. Indentured servitude. (laughs) She did volunteer. Okay, okay. I wanted to make that clear. Fair enough. She was his assistant. She volunteered. She wasn't trafficked in at all. (laughs) This thing is crazy. Okay. So the main objective was to see whether a dolphin could be taught human speech. Right, sure. But the and the pictures of this are crazy, with this very 60s-looking woman, like, in a very 60s-looking house, like, talking on the phone with, like, a dolphin. She's like, no, the dolphin, you know, like... It's, it's crazy. <laughs> Dr. Lilly, the guy who had like run the experiment, he had become interested in dolphins in the 50s after performing a series of inner consciousness investigations on himself. Boo. Where he took LSD and floated around for hours in salt water. Sounds about right. 
which was actually early sensory deprivation tanks, which he later did pioneering research on. Right. I fucking After love it. this dolphin shit. Oh, man. I want to go in one of those tanks. Imagine doing LSD in that. That's nuts. I know. Okay. And yeah, it, that like led him to the belief that dolphins were our cognitive equal and that they might have a form of telepathy that would be important to understanding alien communications. Telepathy. Now, this study with like his assistant, Margaret, Seems a little sketch balls. It's a little sketch balls and was seen as that at the time. Now, so she's living with this thing for 10 weeks. Her bed was a suspended foam mattress, which she eventually fitted with a shower curtain so that Peter, the dolphin, splashes, wouldn't wake her up at night. Okay. <laughs> she noticed that, like, during the few times she had outside contact, which was usually on the phone, she, Peter would, like, talk over her in a very loud and competitive way. Oh, he didn't want her talking to anybody else. No, very, the bond was really real. Super jealous. So she's trying to teach it to speak and by week three she's like really losing her mind like she's getting strained and stressed and peter's whining and making loud noises all day and night for apparently no reason she's tired she's pissed off and then she encounters a new issue quote peter begins having erections and has them frequently when i play with him Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, go, dolphins rape people. Remember, that was a whole thing for a while. Oh, that's right. <laughs> well, this isn't, this doesn't go to a rape. Right, but still, you're like, like oh, but this connection. goes to a weird. <laughs> it goes to a weird. Did she <laughs> play with this dingus? No. Got to a point where her legs was cut, were covered in bruises because oh. Peter kept jamming into her. Oh, with this pee-pee. So she took the matters into her own hands. As <laughs> Literally figured it. <laughs> As I saw it put, Margaret <laughs> felt that the best way of focusing his mind back on his lessons was to relieve his desires herself manually. I can't. Shaw. Dolphin hand jobs. <laughs> it's, it's what this is about. Oh, my <laughs> fucking God, dude. So <laughs> I wanted to read this a little bit from an article about this. As Peter became increasingly gentle, tactile, and sensitive to Margaret's feelings, he began to woo her by softly stroking his teeth up and down her legs. I stand very still, legs slightly apart, and Peter slides his mouth gently over my shin, she wrote in her diary. Peter is courting me. He has been most persistent and patient, obviously a sexy business. No, I... Ooh. The mood is very gentle, still, and hushed. All movements are slow. She was interviewed like more recently yeah. in a documentary about this. She talks about the whole experience more philosophically, and she says, It was very precious. It was very gentle. It was sexual on his part. It was not sexual on mine. Sensual, perhaps. Oh, my goodness gracious. So many emotions being flooded. <laughs> because you're like, yeah, they're we're all animals i'm not like shocked to think that right. in, in that close of quarters that there it's not possible for something like that to happen especially the sophisticated creatures like dolphins right it's just when you're talking about relieving the dolphins right. giant <laughs> raging heart on i'm like i can't because it sounds like it was like he couldn't focus on the lessons that she was like trying to teach him how to like right. say words and stuff my eyes are up here right. it's like constantly he's just like losing him. let me just jerk him off and relax a bit and listen <laughs> just like real life <laughs> Um. <laughs> so in the end, they didn't really find anything definitive about dolphin communication from oh this study. It's like really widely considered to be just a crazy thing that somebody did. Oh, man. Well, when I was doing all that stuff on uh, Nim Chimsky, oh, yeah. the same doctor that was behind all of that shit, he was doing some weird, like, figuring out female chimpanzee yeah, uh, there was like, like... <laughs> orgasms and shit. Yeah. And it's like philosophically or even just on a scientific level, I understand wanting to 
understand animal sexuality, but like, right. dude, you don't want to be living in close quarters with like a super horny dolphin. <laughs> well, they were saying like she left the project after that and like I'm a new woman. She yeah, yeah. And one of the scientists or the veterinarian noticed like he was worried about Peter because Peter was madly in love with her. Peter. Oh my god, that's nuts. <laughs> but yeah, she even said that like his attentiveness helped her overcome depression and fits of self-pity during the 10-week isolation experiment that it really was. You know, like right. she's alone in this house. <laughs> she's unable to go anywhere, talk to anybody except a dolphin. It's like really it's like isolation on a human. Right. Oh. <laughs> Started to fall in love. Oh yeah. my god, I don't even know how to end that. There there's no good way to end that. No. <laughs> The whole time that these guys in, in the movie were talking to the mothership, I just, the whole time I was like, this is a giant Simon. The, the mothership <laughs> yeah. just looked and sounded like a giant Simon to me. It so is. I wanted to learn about the Simon. So well, they're even playing Simon because it's a, it's a repeating game. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So this is what the mothership in the movie sounds like. And then this is what a, a Simon sounds like. And they've got the same colors as the lights. Same colors. There's a whole there's a whole light and sound element. They they both look like giant discs. Whatever. Okay, mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I also didn't realize that the success of Simon was not that it was completely intertwined with the movie, but it definitely did not hurt. First thing, Ralph Baer is this inventor who is known for creating the Simon, and he came to America from Germany in 1938 at the age of 16. This is after being forced to leave Germany because of you know the Nazis. Kinda Those sucked. guys, right? So he comes to America, but then during World War II, he joins the army and serves in England and Europe. But then when he returns back to America, he gets a degree in engineering. At that time, apparently, he seemed to be inspired by America's competitive commercialism. This idea like, if you make it and it works, they will buy it. So mm -hmm. at the same time that he's accruing a bunch of money by working for a defense contractor, <laughs> he starts to also invent... A bunch of fucking games, which is pretty cool. He he like created the first light gun video game in 1967. He made an interactive video quiz game the following year. Way later in his career, he even created a recordable talking doormat called the Chat Mat. Oh, isn't that a, cool? It was a doormat. Yeah, I don't know why you would. <laughs> Welcome to our home. While you're waiting here, let's have a chat, <laughs> shall we? So in 1975, Bear starts a consulting business and he starts working with Marvin Glass and Associates in Chicago. This was a toy design firm and they made some of the most successful toys in America in the 20th century. And so Bear's job was to develop electronic toys and games and the best result of that was, of course, the Simon. So it's, it's inspired by the game Simon Says. Did you know that? It's pretty I obvious, I right? figured. <laughs> but it was also inspired by an Atari arcade game called Touch Me. That's <laughs> okay. like, whoa. And it was essentially the same concept, but it was in arcade form. So it was like a giant version of that. And Bear had seen it at a trade show in 1976 and basically thought like the execution sucked, the sounds blew, but... I like this idea, basically, like trying to repeat a musical sequence, but and also in a handheld form. You saw the vision on the game. 100%. So, like, choosing the tones of Simon was super important. And Bear was looking through his children's encyclopedia, and he discovered while flipping through that the bugle only plays four notes. So he was like, huh. 
the Simon's going to play the four notes of the bugle. Okay. So that was the inspiration. So then Milton Bradley releases Simon in 1978 with a midnight release party at Studio 54, <laughs> which is just fuck, I'm like famous discotheque, Whoa. like Coke Den <laughs> Central. Mick Jagger's out there. <laughs> yeah, they have this like four foot giant model of the game that's like suspended over the dance floor. And it was like this instant success. And then... Well, you said 78. That means that it came out right after this movie. Right. Okay. Right. So, I, but I mean, so, yeah, that's actually, that's so a So really they must point. have been all like high and shit in, in Studio yeah. 54 going like, it's like Close Encounters, but right. like in your hands. So yeah, they do fucking amazing work. And then it, of course, reaches its peak in the 80s. Even in February of 2006, Bear went to the White House and along with George Lucas received the National Medal of Technology. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and according to him, he says, coming up with the ideas isn't hard. The real challenge is finding the time to actually build something and yeah. then finding a home for it. So it sounded like true. this this like delightful moment in history where it was like the beginnings of electronic beep boop bop games <laughs> coupled with this kind of you know UFO look just made it a huge hit for the youths. Yeah. Right? Well, because if I was a kid and I was really into Close Encounters, which I probably would have been yeah. at the time, and then I saw this Simon thing, like, even if I didn't, like, specifically make the connection, this is, like, Close Encounters, I right. would be like, yes! Well, just in general, again, being pattern-finding fucking creatures, yep. Yep. like, we're just finding patterns, you're super proud of yourself, if you're like, yeah, I got the rhythm I knew, I remember, mm -hmm. it's like, mm -hmm. I totally get it. And then, like, they later evolved the game to use, like, touchscreens, like, in 2014, they started mm. to do that. I guess the latest version that Hasbro is releasing is called Simon Air, and it's incorporating touch-free technology. So instead of actually hitting the button, you just hover above the lights. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, I don't That's like this. That's not as fun. It's not as fun at all, especially because the whole, like, the cool thing about the Simon was that it was portable, but this new fucking thing, it's like you have to have a steady surface because, like, I, I feel like they're, they got to be going, like, how is this not just an app? Like, right. how can we actually sell a physical object right. to people and have it be, like, yeah. anything other than a fucking yeah. phone or a touchscreen? Like... Yeah, yeah, but okay, guess what? You hover over it. Yeah, but guess what? You're gonna have to have a, a like a steady level playing space. You can't just take it with you in the car on road trips anymore. Oh, like man. you have to have the thing. And sounds like a flop. Yeah. <laughs> Science. Did you have any favorite lines? I did not have any favorite lines, did you? There were a couple, like, at one point somebody was like, Einstein was right. And then another guy's like, Einstein was probably one of them. The aliens? Yeah. That hair, I mean. <laughs> oh, the hair alone is real <laughs> indication. That, and I, I loved, because, like, at one point, because of the UFO, Dreyfus gets, like, half of his face is heavily sunburnt. And at one point he's like, it's a moonburn, goddammit. Oh, yes. Oh, man. Richard Dreyfuss was really fucking great in this he was movie, great. wasn't he? Totally great. Oh, man. I also just want to say before this is over to any aliens out there listening, if you're planning on landing anytime soon, give us a few years. We yeah. got some shit to work out. I know. As far as leadership, handling it in the right way. Oh, just God. hang on. Give us some time. <laughs> Let's work this shit out. We we'll be down. able to we'll, we'll invite yeah. you in later, but yeah. right now... The yeah. house is wrecked. Maybe one day we can wish upon a star, but for now, let's get our <laughs> shit together on Earth. On that note, I want to ask you guys once again to please rate and review us on iTunes. That's it right. really does mean a lot, and we would love to hear from you guys. Absolutely. You can find us at Oh That's a Thing at Facebook, on Twitter, and .com. I'm at It's a Joy Amia on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Jeffrey Ekman, and you guys have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful week. We're doing Jurassic Park next Dr week. Jurassic Park. <laughs> 
Thank you, Simon.